it's difficult for runners to communicate that, mm-hmm. like, why do you do this? It's like, do you want to be skinny? Do you want to be healthy? And it's like, well, that's nice. But ultimately, it was that, like, challenging myself, working hard toward a goal, being able to do something I couldn't do before. I really liked that. Yeah, I was telling somebody the other day, I'm still chasing that high school. I still chase high school cross country. I still love that moment where running, it comes down to a tunnel and it's just me versus me and that dialogue in my head to try to get the most out of myself. I still love that. That's why, that's why I keep running today. That's Greg McMillan. And this is episode 96 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I sit down with athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running for long-form conversations that will educate you, inspire you, or impact you in some way. My guest this week is Greg McMillan. Perhaps best known for creating the McMillan Calculator, Greg is one of the most recognizable running coaches in the game today. He's the founder and head coach of McMillan Running, one of the world's first and most respected online coaching companies. Greg started sending workouts to his athletes by way of fax machine way back when, which tells you how long he's been in the business. He has a master's degree in exercise physiology and has worked with thousands of runners from beginners to Olympians and every ability level in between. Greg has coached 12 national champions, thousands of Boston qualifiers, and has had numerous athletes compete at global championships over the years. He has written numerous articles for different publications. He was the managing editor of Peak Running Performance for three years and is also the author of You Only Faster, with a new book due out later this spring. Aside from his coaching accolades, Greg is also a pretty damn accomplished runner in his own right. He was a state champion in high school, and in 2009, he won the USATF Masters Trail Marathon national title. This was a conversation about coaching, Greg's influences over the years, the path he took to get where he is today, creating the McMillan calculator, the importance of exposing yourself to different training philosophies, what it's like working with a wide range of athletes, including his own professional group that was based in Flagstaff from 2007 to 2013, and much, much more. Let's get right into it with Greg McMillan. Good to go. Greg McMillan, thanks for coming up to the fringes of Marin County and sitting down with me for another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Always a pleasure to see you. So let's just start with where we are. Marin County is where we both live. This is your second stint here. I'd love to understand what brought you back here and what took you away in the first place? Well, my wife had a startup and so we needed to be kind of in the Bay Area for all of the usual tech startup things that she needed. And then when that sort of didn't work out the way she had hoped it would, we moved back to Flagstaff, Arizona, where we had lived for quite a while. And of course, about six months after we got back there, she got a job at UC Berkeley, which is back here, worked remotely for about a year, but then it was sort of like, okay, you need to be back in the Bay Area. So then we moved back to the Berkeley area, and then now she works downtown San Francisco, so that allowed us to move back to Marin, which is where we had lived before, which we really enjoyed for all the reasons that you live here, because of the running and the environment and the ocean, the bay, all that. How long have you been back? We got back in Marin 
last March, so almost a year back in Marin. And when you went back to Flagstaff, did you guys keep your place there so you had an easy transition back? I'd love to dig into what that was like for you. No, well, yes and no. We had a rental house that we could have moved into, but we decided to buy the house across the street from the one we used to live in that our friends had bought. So we went back into the same neighborhood we were in before because we kind of had a really wonderful situation with our friends. So we had a house we could have moved into, but we ended up buying a different house uh, in the old neighborhood. You've had a little bit of a nomadic existence. I know that you lived in San Diego for a period, then you moved to Flag, then you moved here, then you moved back to Flag, mm-hmm. back here. Do you feel settled in Marin County, California at this point? Well, given our history, it's hard to say yes. Uh, we certainly have been open to all kinds of adventures in our time together. I think that's why we've moved around quite a bit. We've really been open to things we wanted to do, and we've kind of let that guide our existence, kind of that follow your bliss thing of Joseph Campbell. Uh, but now my son, he's in sixth grade, and so it's probably time for us to to settle down a little bit. My wife really enjoys her work. Uh, obviously, I can work from anywhere, so uh, as long as there's good running, I'm pretty happy. So I think we'll be here a while. Cool. I'd love to go back to your beginnings as a runner. What was your introduction to the sport? Well, I grew up in rural Tennessee, and we played, this was a sort of nostalgic playing. We played all over, and so our range of sort of getting around was very wide, easily four or five miles that we would run, walk, bike, uh, get around. So I was super active young. And then in elementary school, they always did these sort of like we had a countywide field day where everybody, you'd participate in your PE class and all the usual stuff from, you know, the high jump, the long jump, the 100 meters, the softball throw, and the mile run. And it's called the top two in your elementary school class that you know, and those events went to the countywide field day, which was in the high school football stadium. So in Tennessee, that's big a big deal right. to get to compete. So me and my buddy who lived one mile away from me, uh, we won the mile in that in our school. And then we got to compete in the countywide field day. And I won that and the next year won again. So I won that through elementary school. So of course the high school coach, he just goes to that and he watches and he's like, there's going to be my sprinter. There's my shot putter. There's my distance guy. So then as I got into middle school and then high school, it was just an easy transition for him to say, Hey, why don't you come out? And I actually loved basketball. That was my first love. But you see the size I am now is even smaller at that time. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, right? Uh, so it was kind of just a natural that once I was doing basketball and cross-country and track, I was just much better at running. And uh, the basketball coach is really nice to say, you can play if you want, and you're, you're a starter, and we'd love to have you, but you're really much better at running. Maybe you should stick with that. And from then on, you know, that's when the running bug really got me. What was it about running that you were initially attracted to? Was it the fact that you were good at it and showed some promise or was there something beyond that that you really enjoyed? I feel I had a great mentor. So there was a guy that was a year ahead of me in high school, and he was fantastic, way better than I was. And he was state champion, went on to be national champion in college, is really good. And I sort of... He was that guy. Some of us have this, like, this guy you look up to, Mm -hmm. and I just wanted to be him. And that kind of got me going. And then the thing that really identified with me was I really enjoyed the me versus me. I enjoyed... Like in basketball, it was great because you had a team and you were, you know, had plays to run and you were a participant. But in running, 
it re- the world kind of came down to me versus me. And I really enjoyed that sort of inter-challenge in my mind. I also love that you got out of it what you put into it. So everybody on the team, no matter their size or shape or whatever, could be better and could help. And so I think having a great coach in high school, having this mentor, and then really connecting with that thing in running, I think that it's difficult for runners to communicate that, Mm -hmm. like, why do you do this? It's like, do you want to be skinny? Do you want to be healthy? And it's like, well, that's nice. But ultimately, it was that, like, challenging myself, working hard toward a goal, being able to do something I couldn't do before. I really liked that. Is that something that's stuck with you over the years? Absolutely. I was telling somebody the other day, I'm still chasing that high school. I still chase high school cross country. I still love that moment where running, it comes down to a tunnel and it's just me versus me and that dialogue in my head to try to get the most out of myself. I still love that. That's why, that's why I keep running today. Well, and it puts us in interesting situations because some of us literally will be chasing past versions of ourselves. And, th- and that can be frustrating, especially as we get older yeah. and those past versions of ourselves are a lot faster than we are now. But if you frame it correctly and it's just like, okay, this is this is where I am right now. And maybe this is where I was yesterday and I'm just trying to be a better version of myself. Like you can hang on to that for a really long time, but also not get, you know, paralyzed by trying to continually, especially in, in a black and white sport like running where the numbers do matter to some degree, where you're like, oh, I'm just I'm just not as good as I was like, you know, five years ago. Maybe I should, you know, abandon this pursuit now. Yeah, I think for me, that's where coming down to that me versus me has allowed me to sustain running, even though I'm slower than I was when I was younger, because I don't care about that as much as I care about can I can I compete with myself? Can I race? Can I execute a race or a workout or training or anything? Can I do my best in it? And that's what I've always been chasing. I certainly loved the external. I was state champion. I was national champion when I turned masters. So, I mean, I I loved all of that stuff. That's wonderful. But ultimately, I really dig just me versus me. I really like that challenge of myself. And maybe that's why I don't I mean, I certainly would love to be a minute per mile faster, but I, I'm not hooked. I'm not, you know, I don't get uh, too caught up in it. I really more about can I can I do well in this race or this workout or this season? I appreciate that. I think it's a great perspective. Let's stick with the high school years for right now. In addition to running and a little bit of basketball before that, what were your other interests? Well, I played baseball when I was uh, young, loved uh, bike riding. So we, you know, rode all around. Uh, and then it was kind of baseball, basketball, and play. That's kind of what we did. Uh, I tried football for a couple of weeks in junior high, but, you know, I was, when I graduated high school, I was five foot six, 115 pounds. So you can imagine what I was like earlier than that. So um, pretty much just play, a lot of play. A lot of folks know you now as a running coach and exercise scientist. I'd love to understand when the science part of that equation came into the picture. It started in high school, really, because once I really caught the bug, and this was when I was a junior, uh, I really got into running, and I wanted to learn everything to help me be a better runner. So I started reading everything. I certainly read Runner's World magazine, The Runner at that time, anything that was out. And I started collecting old running books. So I was just reading everything to try to figure out how to be better. That led, of course, to going to 
undergrad and then graduate school studying exercise science. So I think it really started. In fact, I was just home and saw some of my old notes and I had down like what articles were in each magazine. I had I'd written it out in a notebook, what page like a this bibliography was on. Of yeah, sorts, almost yeah. like a, your research library, like oh, if I need to look up cross training, here's where it is. So I just kind of had that interest and it was all selfish. It was all about how can I be better? It was a quest for me to be a better runner. What was your coaching situation like at the time, meaning the coaches that you were working with at the high school level, did they have a profound impact on you or is that why you went down this road of self-exploration and self-education? The most important impact, Coach Charlie Pruitt, my high school coach, the most important impact, he set my whole life. He was one of those guys that um, he just knew how to get a group of boys to come together and form a team and challenge themselves to be a little bit better and be accountable to each other. And he had a great sense of humor, but we were ser- we were serious enough, but, you know, light enough. And he just set that pattern. And he had done it for a long time. We were rural Tennessee. We shouldn't have been any good, but we had good teams through from the 70s on. And so I think, you know, him just imparting this love of the sport and team and getting the most out of yourself. And he was so caring to me. And uh, so that set the pattern. So it wasn't that, you know, I was searching for something I didn't have. It was more just an evolution of he set me on this path and I just wanted to learn more and more and more. Did you know at that time that you wanted to be a coach someday? No, I never intended to be a coach. I was going to be, I want to be an Olympian. I mean, I think like, you know, everybody, yeah. it was Quentin Cassidy. I want to go <laughs> train in the, in the woods and become an Olympian. That was my whole focus was just getting better and better. And it just happened to be in undergrad when I was studying exercise science. You know, you hang out with runners and they ask you questions. And I was, you know, so into it that I would just share what I was learning or I'd read or I'd experienced. And, you know, then they ask you, give them a workout and then write them a plan. And then suddenly mm-hmm. they call you coach. So it wasn't a, you know, I'm going to be a coach. It was more just, I love this sport. I love sharing. I love helping people. And it just kind of, that's the way it worked out. At what point of your high school career did you realize you wanted to continue running in college and perhaps even beyond? Well, it was a natural progression to me. I was always a fan of the sport. Uh, I was always, at that time, track and field news was our only sort of mechanism to understand the sport. So I devoured that. I knew every name of every good runner, all the heroes that you can have from Steve Jones and Rod Dixon and all the, John Troutwine, like all these guys that were really good during my era. And I just wanted to be them. So the natural step was you competed in high school and then you went to college and then hopefully you got a contract with some shoe company and you could keep running. Which wasn't easy to come by at that time. Impossible. You don't realize it when you're young. You just think it's going to happen. Well, and you see other people doing it and you're like, that's what I want. I want to be that guy who's out racing Mm -hmm. for a living, (laughs) not realizing that the number of opportunities to actually do that, especially, I mean, this is what, 1980s. 80s. Aren't very prevalent. Insane. I mean, Pat Porter was like, he was the big, he was cross country, which was my love. And it's like, he lived in Alamosa, probably made no money, but he was so good. But anyway, that's what my sort of path that I wanted for myself. Where'd you run in college? 
University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Okay. And what division were they? Division one. And who was coaching you at the time? That was Mike Woods was the guy that recruited me there. And when you got to college, was that a tough transition for you coming out of high school? It wasn't too bad. The volume was a little bit higher than I could tolerate. I was always very injury prone. So I was pretty low mileage runner uh, in high school for that time uh, for sure injured quite a bit and probably needed a little bit more hand-holding and uh, control than I had. So that was the biggest challenge was just the volume of training. I could, we had a, we were set up to have a really good team. So I was excited about that. I wanted to go to a school where I would probably be number four, five, or six guys so I could travel Mm -hmm. first out, but yet, you know, I wasn't the best guy on the team. So that was a pretty good setup, but the the workouts were just way bigger volume. And I just I was state champion as a senior, so I remember the first couple of workouts, I just finished going, I don't know if I can do this. They're just so big volume. And that was kind of I guess the biggest transition, but I learned a really important lesson and that was you can control how you run your workouts. Right. So you can make the workout harder or easier on yourself. And that served me very well because I needed to kind of, because I was super competitive and wanting to show my spot, you know, con, you know, I learned how to kind of moderate. Well, my especially effort. in an environment like that, you feel like you need to prove yourself or prove something or yeah. prove your spot on the team, especially as, you know, freshman, sophomore, just trying to make the travel squad. Yeah. And they give you a scholarship. So you're like, well, I got to earn this. I need to be performing. And you're also, you look ahead and you say, well, this is what the juniors and the seniors are doing. So that's what I need to do as well. So it took me a little while to kind of figure that out, uh, to be able to modulate the training. Did you ever have any conversations with your coach along the lines of, hey, I think this is just too much volume for me or too much intensity or just too much workload in general. I might need to scale things back because I'm getting injured or I'm not running to the level that I think I should be. I did not. I I came from Coach Pruitt and I just did whatever he said. And so I I didn't question it. I I learned from it, I think. I, I Certainly, he saw my frustration with not being able to stay healthy and not kind of living up to the potential that I thought I had and he thought I had. So I think he began to modify it a little bit. We didn't have that kind of open, honest conversation about, hey, I need to do this because that that just didn't occur to me that that would be a thing that you would do. As you got deeper into your collegiate career and deeper into your academic studies and exercise science, did that ever flick off a light bulb in your head that made you question what you were doing at the time from a training standpoint, or maybe better understand what it was that you were doing? I'd, I'd love to understand just sort of how you navigated that. Well, I, I, like I said, I think intuitively I started to modify the training that I was doing and how I executed the training. And the coach would, I think, start to reduce the volume a little bit in some of those. So that was, that was very helpful. But mainly I was just trying to figure out the why. I wanted to know the why. Why is this working? Why would you do this? What's the history behind that type of workout? Because, you know, most coaches, certainly in the 70s and 80s, that was just inherited training. That was just, well, this coach did it and they said to do it this way, so that's what you did. And I was kind of uh, really interested in the whys. Why are we doing this? Uh, And so that kind of started part of it. And then I transferred from University of Tennessee Chattanooga 
to Knoxville, which is the main UT campus, because they had an exercise science program and Chattanooga <laughs> didn't. So I wanted to make sure I could continue that path of learning more and more. And I walked onto the team there, but I was really not prepared for that. That was when Todd Williams was there and like everybody the had been guns. on, they had been on national teams. They're all wearing USA jerseys. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm out of my league here. <laughs> did you finish up your collegiate career at Knoxville? I did, but I didn't compete for them. I okay. was not good enough to run for them, but I did get an excellent undergrad in exercise science from some people that were really influential in that world at the time. How were you thinking about your next steps as a runner at that time? Well, I was questioning them, to be honest, because I'd been hurt so much and I felt like I had this talent, but I liked the durability. So uh, I, I was unsure. I still ha held out hope that, boy, if I can put it together, I can qualify for the 10K or something like that mm. for the trials. I was pretty sure I was not going to go to the Olympic Games as an athlete, uh, for, but I felt like, could I qualify for the trials? That would be a really big deal for me. And how are you thinking about your career ambitions at that point? Well, at that time, as an exercise science undergrad, you kind of had a few options. The The main option that you would choose is to become a physical therapist. So you would kind of go the injury treatment route. Mm -hmm. That was the, I would say, the most secure and professional way that you could do it. And so that was kind of what I had my eye on was okay, I, I've been injured all the time. I want to learn more about injury prevention and these kinds of things. So physical therapy would kind of be the direction that I would go. But you chose not to. Well, I, I my first job was in a physical therapy clinic. I did exercise conditioning, they called it. And it was in a workers' compensation clinic. So people that you know got injured on the job would come in and work. And boy, it was a big negative for me. Because I just come from undergrad where you're filled with classes of people that are athletes and want to compete and they want to get better and they're all about health and fitness. And you go into a workers' comp situation, 90% of the people didn't love their job. They didn't want to go back to their job. They didn't want to exercise. So you've got people on the treadmill, you know, okay, we walk at... 0.5 miles an hour for 10 seconds, and then we sit down. So it was kind of a negative and such a change for me yeah. that I said, I don't think physical therapy is for me. I really, I, I love working with people, but it's just such a, it's a, I'm not sure I'm good at working with people who are not motivated to do the things that I would want to do. Using your exercise science background and taking that initial step into physical therapy, did you ever find out why it was that you were getting injured so frequently as a collegiate athlete? Yeah. I, I mean, sadly, I think some of it is I can blame it on my parents. You know, some of us just have a, a physical structure and a mechanics that make it very difficult to do the training load that I certainly wanted to do. But I learned a lot more about modulating your training that you can, if you're in control of your training and you listen to your body, you can do a lot of things to mitigate the, what usually leads you down that path to injury. And I think I've been a, a better coach because I was injured so much. So I'm very protective of the athletes to try to keep them injury-free because we know that's a, a quicker path, a better path long-term to uh, ultimate success. What were some of the biggest things that you learned about modulating training in order to keep people healthy? 
Number one is adjust your effort based on how you're feeling on the day, right? And so I, you know, I just did a video, which runner showed up today? And it's about like, hey, you're not the same person every day. And so you need to pay attention to that. And that should be your, because that's what us as coaches do, right? We're just saying, how are you feeling? How'd you feel yesterday? How are you feeling today? And we're making those modifications. So I'm trying to teach athletes, okay, you need to make those modifications. You need to listen to yourself. So I think one component is just modulating the day based on how you feel. And then the other is learning it's okay to spread the stress, move things around, not be so, you know, here's the training schedule. I have to do this. And most of us are kind of driven. We're that type A and that's a, that's a tough thing for us. But if you can start to say, you know, I'm going to skip that workout and not worry about it, you, you begin to say, okay, I'm going to train today so I can train tomorrow. And that is a really good lesson. And once you sort of move into that mindset, I think it allows you to, you know, injuries are just tightness, ache, pain, hurt. It's just the path we always mm-hmm. seem to have in running. So it's like interrupting that early keeps it from developing into an injury. I think it's such a hugely important thing for any athlete to learn. And along the lines of what you just said, I think our goal as coaches is to make the athlete more self-sufficient. I've often said that I look at it as the athletes driving the bus or the car and we're in the passenger seat, just kind of telling them where to go. Watch out for this bump, turn right, turn left, speed up, slow down, all that, where I think there is a tendency for a lot of coaches and athletes to think like, no, 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 the, the coach drives and I'm just going to do what the what the coach says, but you're not teaching self-sufficiency at that point. And then when they get in that situation where you give them a workout, that's like six by 800 at three minutes. And I'm like, all right, coach said I got to run three minutes. And they'll do whatever they need to do to run three minutes when if we've done our job correctly, they know going into that, it's like, okay, three minutes is kind of the the guideline, but maybe I don't have it on that day. Or maybe I feel better and I end up running like 258s and I just got to go with it because the effort is right. And that's a hard lesson for athletes and coaches to learn. It is. And I think maybe like I learned in college, maybe because I learned that myself pretty early that I had to do it if I wanted to keep running, maybe that served me well going in. And maybe that's why uh, it's kind of like the number one lesson I'm trying to teach runners mm-hmm. is, man, you do need to be able to coach yourself. You're the only one that can feel it. And everybody has an intuition. Everybody has that heart or soul or whatever it is, the little voice. And so it's really, like you say, saying, yes, this is the idea, but your little voice needs to guide you in how you execute that. And if that becomes, if you become in charge, it can really change how you structure your training. Yeah, I think that's hugely important. I'd love to go back to right when you got out of college, not to date you, but as a frame of reference, what are we talking about in terms of a year? Uh, 1992, I graduated undergrad. Okay, so you do this little physical therapy assistant deal, realize this isn't for me. What are your next steps professionally? Well, it was really interesting. My roommate in college at Chattanooga, uh, was from Nashville, and he befriended a guy named Guy Avery, and he started a running newsletter called Peak Running Performance. I remember that. And I, yeah, so I had gone home and I met him, and I had already been doing a little bit of writing when I was an undergrad, and I wrote for like the Knoxville Track Club <laughs> newsletter. I had an article or two in there. And so he asked me if I was interested in doing some writing. So I was working in the physical therapy clinic and then also writing. And so as I kind of made that transition from, I don't think I want to work in physical therapy, 
he hired me full time to be the managing editor. So I would write and then edit the newsletter for him. And Mostly I did that. training related topics? All training related. Okay. It was kind of like it's kind of like taking the science and making it approachable or talking about this training system and the whys and hows of it. Yes, for peak running performance. Sorry. I, yeah, I meant yeah. even before that when you were writing for like the the newsletters or whatever yeah, yeah. it was, was it just sort of a, a, a mix of things? Totally. It was okay. like, why do you need to fuel in the marathon? It was, you know, basic stuff now. But at that time it was like, hey, you need People fueling. People were thinking about exactly. it. Exactly. It, it was, And this is where you know, exercise science started to become really, started to drive a lot of training in the 90s, um, somewhat to the detriment of our endurance performance athletes, but that was, there was a big movement toward that. So I was just writing about all those kinds of things. And were you still living in Tennessee at the time? I was. Uh, I was in Knoxville and then had moved to Nashville to work for Peak Running Performance. Hey, we're taking a quick break because this episode is brought to you by Exoskin. Exoskin is the only seamless athletic apparel brand in the United States and solves the problems most endurance athletes deal with like chafing, blisters, hot spots, and odor. Every Exoskin product uses their patented fibers, that's PTFE and copper, along with three-dimensional seamless knitting to create the most comfortable apparel on the market. Best of all, there's no friction. The stuff is super durable and it doesn't smell after I've run in it. I've run in both their compression shorts and their socks and have been super impressed with how they fit, feel, and perform on the run. The shorts are great on their own or they make an awesome base layer to keep you warm and the socks are lightweight, snug fitting, and moisture wicking. Exoskin lets me move freely and comfortably and it helps keep my body temperature under control. Exoskin Apparel has been independently tested against all the big brands and has outperformed all of them when it comes to wicking and dry rate testing. You can check out the results of those tests on their website, exoskin.us. That's exoskin.us. Exoskin stands behind every product they make with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Check them out today at exoskin.us. That's exoskin.us and use the code Mario. That's my name. When you check out and you'll save 20% on any order. My thanks to Exoskin for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Did you have influences in either the coaching world or exercise science world at that time that you were really into and were starting to help formulate your own thinking about training and coaching? Yeah, I mean, the the first book I ever read was Lydiard's book. We had a handwritten copy, if you can believe that, of Lydiard that got passed around through my high school team. I, I wish I knew where that book was. It was just transformative. And I even typed it out. I have like a typed copy of the training schedules now that I showed to Lydiard when I was with him. And he was like, oh my God. Uh, so it was that. And then Galloway's first book, which was before his run walk, which is really another version of Lydiard. So those were my two sort of starting points. And then David Costell, who's at Ball mm-hmm. State, very influential exercise physiologist, he wrote a book, it's a little pamphlet called What Research Tells the Distance Coach or something like that. Seminal work. I mean, it. you can see how Daniel's book comes from it. You can see how Better Training for Distance Runners comes from it. You can see how all these kind of evolved from that book. Influenced so, all different completely, kinds of people. Because he was sort of writing about this emerging uh, exercise science, because exercise science was really starting to evaluate distance running. This was for the 68 Olympics and then 72 and then shortly thereafter. So there was a lot of like exercise science stuff going on to try to figure out distance running. So the combination of like 
Lydiard, Galloway, and then Costal, and then the research stuff that kind of came from all of that formed this unique, like, okay, I had one foot in the real world, like these are the people doing it, and then another foot over here, these are people to try to figure out why it works. And I've kind of loved, I love to be in, in both, both of those worlds. And you were just eating all of this up at the time. Oh my gosh, man. It was, I was reading everything possible. I, I preferred the older books. Anytime I would go to a used bookstore, I would just try to find any older book that I could have. I would talk to everyone that had any connection with anything older running i would i would check it out and it was it was kind of like joseph campbell you're like going backwards to like learn where does all this come from what's the origin of this and that that was really fun for me i'd love to connect all of that to greg mcmillan the athlete at the time were you coaching yourself or using a lot of this newfound knowledge to experiment and figure out different training methodologies or philosophies schedules i, th- I think i started like a lot of coaches, I was kind of a robot. I was just taking existing training and, you know, applying it to athletes and then slowly started to sort of observe and feel more confident at modifying and, and adjusting. Certainly for myself, I had a pretty good idea what worked and what didn't work. And then with other people, particularly since I was coaching a lot of people that were slower than I was, and then some people that were faster, that began me trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this all work so I can understand what works for a new runner and then also works for somebody who's more competitive. Well, we skipped a step there. How did you get into coaching? What was your initial foray into it? It was really in undergrad where I was just hanging out with sort of these, you know, recreation runners in the community and they started asking me advice and I started just, you know, telling them what I thought and then writing them a training plan and they called me coach. So it was really working with a handful of sort of competitive age group athletes who were trying to, you know, win their age division or qualify for Boston or something like that. And this was just something you were doing on the side. Completely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was I just mean, you were a fun. student athlete at the time, but even beyond school, when you got into grad school, did you continue just helping people out? in addition to your studies and whatever work you were doing? Yeah, peak running performance, we started offering coaching. And so this will date me as well. We were doing it by fax. (laughs) So we would fax the training plan over and they would fax back the results. And so I had gotten exposed to doing sort of remote coaching that way. That is early days of remote coaching. Yeah, really early days. Um, And so I've kind of just continued to do that. But fortunately... Technology's advanced where we have a lot better communication. So that really started at peak running performance. And that's when I felt like I learned to coach better. Guy was a wonderful mentor to me. He's an excellent coach. He was really well grounded in understanding the background of all these training systems. And so that set me up for for really good success. But I, I got most of the initial guinea pigs out of the way working for them and then, you know, kind of continue from there. How long were you, were you at peak running performance? I was there, I think, two or two and a half years full time. I'd been there a little bit before part time riding. And I quickly learned that I still wanted to learn more. I still had not learned everything I needed to learn. I was still interested in... My undergrad was in kinesiology, which is a little bit more of the biomechanics Mm -hmm. and anatomy because, again, the injury sort of physical therapy side of things. 
I felt like, okay, the chassis, I understand a little bit. I didn't want to understand the engine. So I decided to go back to school and get exercise physiology for my master's degree. Where'd you go for your master's program? University of South Carolina. And I chose that because they had an excellent exercise science program. And the chair was a guy named Russ Pate. And he got his PhD in exercise physiology at the University of Oregon in 1975. So if you know University of Oregon at that time, that's Bowerman, Dellinger, Prefontaine. It's all of those guys. He had been top 10 in the Boston Marathon. He'd qualified for multiple Olympic marathons or Olympic trials. So I was like, okay. That's the guy I want to learn This is my guy, right? He's my guy. He's got one foot in the real world and he's got another foot in exercise science. And I thought, okay, this is where I want to be. And it was fantastic. He was such a great mentor to me. And everybody that, all the other students, from the master's students like myself to the PhD students, all had the same kind of, we just had such that collection where we were always just talking ideas and exploring. And the instructors were really good at, I don't know, it's just one of those things where they, they led us in the right ways. They let us kind of do our thing, but they were always there to guide us. And he's been really important for me to understanding how to blend the science with the real world. What were some of the biggest revelations for you during that time in grad school learning from him? I think, um, well, the first thing he said was, hey, exercise science is not the answer. Athletes and coaches have already figured out what works. We're just trying to explain how it works and then how we can take that and apply it to everybody else. Because, you know, if you're young and studying exercise science, you think this is the answer. This is going to tell me everything I, I need to formula. know. Yes, I'm, it's going to be the formula of how to become an Olympian. So he, he really had a good feel for, hey, you know, there's got to, people know what works. We're just trying to help individualize what works for everybody. So that was really important. And then the second thing was understanding the thresholds and capacities that human beings have, because that ultimately is what drives all our training zones and what we're trying to um, develop through the physical training and how those also connect with the mental side of things, the psychology side, because we had a good psychology component as well. So that was really informative because it allowed you to understand why athletes felt a certain way doing certain things and how you could manipulate that so that they might improve that capacity or push that threshold farther or understanding how they're going to feel while they're doing that work and the mental capacity to do that or recover from that. If I can interrupt, do you think in general, since you've been around this for a long time, a lot of exercise science programs or exercise scientists neglect the psychological side of it? I think it's, it's the nature of the beast because the body is so easy to study. A lot of our technology that has come through has all been uh, the ability to measure the body. You can look at carbo-loading. Right. I mean, that ultimately stemmed a lot from now we were doing muscle biopsies and we could stain those tissues, and that drove a lot of understanding carbohydrate loading. But the brain, we couldn't get in there. It was just difficult to measure. So as now we're starting to have a big, that's why we've seen such a big movement in neuroscience over the last little bit. We've got a better picture into it. So I think part of it was just we didn't have a way to look at it. It was fuzzy. Because if you're talking to, you know, PhD professor types, 
they can't deal with fuzzy. That doesn't get you published, right? You need to be more, you got to be more exact. So I think that's why a lot of people, but the great coaches, and you've been around a bunch of them. Hill is a great example, right? I mean, that guy's a psychologist. I mean, it's just you want to run through walls for and he's him. also got his PhD in exercise science. Totally. And is still um, studying at 89, 90 years old. Crazy. So all of those coaches just, I mean, from a Mark Wetmore who brings his kind of zen way into doing it to a Hill who's a little bit more, you know, just like run through the walls. Everybody's got that component, and I think that's a big part of it. The reason I ask that is I look at – coaching I don't think it's it's just two distinct camps I think the best coaches are somewhere in the middle or at least draw from the two but you've got those who come at it from a purely physiological perspective and it's like this is how the body works this is the stress we're going to apply this is going to be the response and this should be the result and then you've got on the opposite side this I call it the psychological coach who comes in and, you know, they take whatever program has sort of been handed down or maybe it's what they did as an athlete or, or they've read, but they're very good at working with people and they understand their motivations and what helps an athlete tick. And that's sort of like their, you know, their driving force. And I think it's, it's when you find that, that coach who, whether they have the degree or not and in either of those fields who, who understands the interplay between the physiology and the psychology is when you end up getting the best results. And that doesn't always mean putting someone on an Olympic team. That could just be helping someone get a PR or qualifying for Boston or whatever it may be for them. Totally. I think that's all the best coaches when you talk to them. You know, they may have one slant or another. Right. They may talk more physiology or more psychology or whatever. But ultimately, the best coaches – I mean, there's, there's been success with everything – but in general, it's the people that understand the whys and the hows and then can get their athletes to to buy in and get them to do stuff they didn't believe they could do. When you finished up grad school, how were you thinking about your career at that point and what you wanted to do with this newfangled degree? Well, it was interesting. I just, uh, while I was in graduate school, which was in Columbia, South Carolina, they had hosted the 1996 Olympic marathon trials. So my graduate assistantship was working on the trials. So I had this wonderful like exposure to That's this elite cool. world, which was like, for me, who always wanted to be an elite, it was so cool to be around all of that. So I was really like, how do I keep doing this? How can I play in this world? And then uh, Dr. Pate had hired me to come back and work in the Department of Exercise Science. So I managed their in-house. Uh, they had kind of a cardiac rehab type fitness center for employees. So I managed that so I could kind of stay in the exercise uh, science world for a while. So that kind of was my next step. And then peak running performance had been purchased by Roadrunner Sports in San Diego. And they called me a couple of years later and said, hey, would you be interested in coming back and working on it again? And I was like, yeah, this is So you've been be away great. from it for a few years at that point. I had. Okay. Um, and was just working in the university in the excess science department and had met what was going to be my wife at that time and then got this job offer to go to San Diego and do this. And, 
you lived in San Diego. I mean, if, if you take a trip to San Diego and somebody says, we'll pay you to come live here, you're like, okay, okay, <laughs> I'm on the plane. So that was kind of the next step to go back and, again, work it with peak running performance and do the editing and writing and, and some of that. And, of course, get really locked into the San Diego running scene, which at that time, I mean, with the triathlon scene going on and running there, it was just a really great opportunity. What year was this? That would have been in 1997. How long were you in San Diego? Uh, we left San Diego in 2000, I guess 2000, 2001. My wife was getting her PhD at UC Irvine, so we moved up to Irvine. So we were in Southern California still at that time. And when you were working for Peak Running Performance the second time around, where was your coaching practice at that time in terms of working with athletes? Not, it was kind of non-existent. We did a little bit of coaching still, and I still had some of those from the fax days. I still had a few of those, but mainly it was just, um, you know, some, a few recreational people, but not, not as serious as I had done it before. How did things evolve from there? Well, then I got the opportunity to work for Discovery USA. Do you remember the FILA Discovery USA With team? Dr. Rosa. Yeah. At, in, uh, Mount Laguna. Laguna. So one of the guys that was on that team when it first started was a very good friend of mine and ran for the Adidas local team. Moving Shoes team. Moving Shoes team. So I was on the Moving Shoes team. Okay. And he was like the, the regional really good guy. And he was uh, part of that Discovery USA team. Was that Brian Cully? That was Brian Cully. Exactly. And we were then, on the same team years later when I moved to San Diego, 2010, what is now Prado Racing Team. Exactly. That was a Brian Cully creation. Exactly, yes. Which I think you were on as well. Exactly. That's crazy. Small world. It's very small world. So their first, they had an on-site coach who kind of managed the team and, you know, recorded the workouts. And so Brian, uh, that coach was leaving. So Brian said, hey, Greg, you should do it. Uh, and he told everybody that I should do it. And, of course, I was... Like, okay, that sounds awesome. A little bit scary. It's a little over my head. Because this is like, you know, everybody's elite and everybody's trying to be These really, are world-class level athletes. And the pressure was you're supposed to produce the next Boston Marathon champion and Olympians and all of that. And while I had coached some people who were better than I was, I hadn't coached a lot of people who were at that level. Like at that level. Um, but there was kind of the pressure was off because I was just the on-site coach. All I had to do was record the workouts. I didn't you, have to make up You weren't up actually drawing them up. No, no. I just got the plan okay. and was like, okay, tomorrow we're doing this. And then I would, you know, make the bottles up and drive them wherever they need to be, time, and then just report back and kind of do. So it was kind of a soft way to get into it. It's almost for like sure. doing an apprenticeship of sorts or internship even. Yeah, it was. I didn't have quite the pressure um, from that standpoint, but I got to observe a lot. What'd you learn? Uh, I learned a lot of what not to do for sure with certain athletes because the program was essentially a mimic of what was done in Discovery Kenya. And Discovery Kenya was wildly successful. This is Paul Turgot and Moses Tanui and like incredible success. Um, and that program that came over that we were to replicate, the athletes were not prepared to do it. Uh, the athletes in Discovery Kenya had an upbringing that was so different. I mean, they're running on average, they're covering 5K a day to and from elementary school. They're covering 10K a day to their junior high. I mean, it's just massive amounts of work done so they could handle that program and 
our athletes, they couldn't handle it as well. Background just wasn't quite they up to They just snuff. weren't quite ready. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the story of Milo, right? You just, you can't put the full bull on the little kid. You got to put the little bull on the little kid and then they grow. So I learned, and luckily, as I began to provide more and more feedback on what I was seeing and the results of the athletes, I was given a little bit more opportunity to massage the training. Make adjustments. Make and adjustments. And Who was directing the training from afar? Was it Dr. Rosa? Rosa. Okay. Yeah. So Rosa. Gabrielle would, Rosa? Yeah. And then, well, he had, there was a guy named Claudio Bellini mm-hmm. um, who is not with him. He left shortly after that time. They've had multiple Claudios, I think. Uh, but he was the one we also communicated with. So that program was coming down and that gave me a chance to really start to modify it. And then we started to see a lot more results because we were, again, kind of like modifying it based on the athletes. Because originally it was like, because you know, in Kenya, you can kind of be throw the eggs against the wall. You can be just like survival of the fittest because there's 200 guys trying to give it a go. You're like, well, who cares if 180 of them don't make it? You've got 20 amazing. We couldn't really do that with 10 athletes. So it had to be a little bit more massaged. And they gave me a little bit more opportunity to massage a little bit. And then we started having better success. We had our first national championship. We, you know, putting people on the world championship teams, that sort of thing. Well, I think that's a huge lesson for any coach because oftentimes you have coaches who are like, this is my program or my system and you are going to adapt to it. And more often than not, that doesn't end up well. Whereas on the flip side, if you're adapting to the athlete and it's like, okay, this is who they are. This is their background. This is where they're at. This is what they can handle. And then you can, you know, tailor the training accordingly. Yeah. It's, it just sort of a shift, right? From a like, okay, everybody do this and whoever was strong could do it. But we had, you know, a fair number of people that weren't surviving. Obviously, if you're a coach, that destroys you if you have somebody who's trying really hard and and can't succeed or gets hurt. So I was really lucky. I think that like a lot of people that I've worked for or with, I I was good at like communicating my what I observed and my ideas in a way that wasn't didn't make people defensive, but saw it as like okay, he's trying to help these athletes, and that started to get the program. Uh, kind of going in a direction where I think we were having more consistent results Mm -hmm. um, because of that. And then unfortunately in 2002, Fila went up for sale and immediately they cut, you know, we were marketing budget. So they cut the program and we were done. Where did you go from there? I know you went up to Irvine, but from a coaching standpoint, did that reignite something for you? You're like, this is what I want to do. I want to work with more athletes maybe at this level, maybe at a couple levels down from that and help them get where they want to go. That was the start of McMillan running. That's when, you know, that program had ended. There were still some athletes that wanted to work with me. Other people were interested in working with me. I felt like I had, I had a good overview of like the blending of science with training. I had seen it from the Lydiard kind of view. I'd seen it from the Western European view. I had been exposed to sort of the Australian, New Zealand viewpoint. I had been exposed to the Japanese viewpoint. I had been exposed to all these different kind of cultures and how they train. 
So I, I kind of just started building the website and it was set up really as an educational site. Websites and, weren't easy to build back then. No, I mean, I, I learned Dreamweaver, which you got to be old to know what Dreamweaver, Dreamweaver and Photoshop. And for 12 years, I just did the website myself. Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty basic for sure. How important is it as a coach to expose yourself, as you just described, to these different philosophies? To me, it was important. To me, it made sense. I always liked the people that had a depth who liked to kind of work backwards. I, I always talk about it. If you if you look at like the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton and those guys, they've all talked about, oh, we listen to this music from the this blues music from the US, right? And then they would be like, well, those guys learned it from these guys, and these guys learned it from these guys. Joseph Campbell, the same way. This was learned from this. This evolved from this. It just all gets passed down. Greek and Roman mythology, right? They call it this thing, but it's the same person. They just have a different name. So I really liked that. And so I was always like, okay, let me go and check this person out. What are they calling it? What are they, what does it mean? That kind of gave me my decoder ring. So I could read anything and be like, okay, I know what they're talking about, even if they're using different words or the same words but calling it or meaning it in a different way. Was the Macmillan calculator in existence yet? Yeah, I created it in graduate school. So this is in the 90s. Because I was working with a wide range of athletes and because my research was on predicting performance based on lab results, uh, I was really had a, a need to have a tool that could deliver exactly what I wanted as a coach. And I wanted to be able to say, for no matter what kind of workout you're doing, these are the exact pace range zone that will get you the stimulus we want. And then I wanted to be able to predict their times so I could help them, you know, hey, you're going into this 10K, here's what you can expect to run. Right. There were lots of different ways to do that at that time, but none of them were kind of in one place the way I wanted it to be. And there were always sort of issues that I found with each different method or whatever. And so that came from my research, which is my thesis, and what I was kind of studying. And so I still have the binder. It's just a printout of like thousands of Excel sheets for each kind of performance level. And then in 2002, my buddy, who was a programmer, he programmed it so that it would work on the web. And it was on page three of this long article about training. And then all of a sudden, it just became very known and people liked it. Well, now it's the front facing thing on your website. Well, that's because my buddy said, I don't know what's going on on page three of this article, but everybody's going there. And so as a result, you just sort of move it forward to make it a little bit more, you know, available. Has it evolved over the years? It has. The sort of the algorithms or the thought behind it have, has evolved as we've learned more and we've got more data. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably 20 million runners have used it. So there's a lot of sort of learning. It's not quite a machine learning or artificial intelligence like that, but there's just been slow evolution over time of it. Um, and it's, you know, it it's just a guide. It's just to get you in the ballpark, um, but I think that it's helped a lot of people and coaches be able to at least help athletes like, okay, this is the zone, so try this and see how it feels and we'll learn from it. Yeah, I mean, personally, I found it hugely helpful. I think the McRun app still exists. I still use it regularly. I think people can still download it from the app store on, on their phone, but it's like I use that as a coach when I'm looking at my own 
athlete trained for exactly the reasons that you just said. It's like, okay, like you've run, you've just run, you know, these couple of five K's and you've done it in 19 minutes. So we're getting ready for a half marathon 12 weeks from now. That just kind of gives me an idea of what our starting point should be mm-hmm. and like what the stimulus is like. I know the stimulus that we're trying to achieve, but like what those numbers look like and you can yeah. give someone a range. So, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's been hugely important for, for that type of thing. And we've seen similar calculators, um, emerge. I don't know the timing of all of them, but you got Jack Daniels calculator. You've got, I've seen the Tin Man calculator. And I think it's interesting for me as someone who didn't do all the research, but uses these tools to, to help my coaching. Uh, it's interesting to kind of like compare all of them because you're all working with like different types of athletes and, and different data sets. And I find that there is like a lot of continuity between the two. And then there's, there's some major differences as well, but keeping in mind that regardless of which one you use, they're all just guides. Like there's yeah. no exact formula that, okay, just because you did run that 5k in 19 minutes doesn't mean that, you know, 39 is guaranteed to happen for that 10k or whatever the half marathon right. extrapolates to from there. And, and, and I just, I want to highlight that because I think I've seen a lot of coaches and athletes who are like, but the calculator says I should be able to do this. And it's like, yeah, but you are not a programmable robot. <laughs> that's right. You're a living organism. It's slightly different. Uh, but that's why it was created, and it, it's been free. It's always free. It always will be. Just it's out there to available if it can help people kind of narrow it. It's very helpful, particularly for newer runners who haven't exposed themselves to a lot of different types of training. It kind of gives them a starting point, and hopefully it allows them to pull back into effort. Hopefully it's a way to be like, okay, this zone connects with this effort. Mm-hmm. Then you don't need as much of that data as you had before. But obviously I use it. It's just been a great tool for me working with people that are much slower than I am. And then a lot of people now that have been much, much faster. Sometimes it's, those numbers don't make sense if you don't have some calculator sure. to be able to be like, okay, yeah, 445 pace for this athlete will feel comfortable. <laughs> Whereas to me, that does not feel comfortable. <laughs> but you know, if you have a Brett Gocher who can run 10 for the marathon, he can run 445 pace, no problem. So, you, you know, you start to get a little bit, uh, I think it's helpful in that way. So back to 2002-ish, McMillan running launches. When did that become a full-time or mostly full-time pursuit for you? Well, my wife had finished her uh, PhD and was going to be a professor. So I needed something mobile, which is why the website was set up and online coaching or remote coaching was uh, going to be a good path. And I thought... And online coaching was in its infancy at that oh, point. Oh, yeah. I mean, Like the, you said, faxing and maybe at that point, email. Email was just... Um, I mean, that was just starting, but it was just way different at that time. But it was available and it made it, made it easier for people um, and because of your background, people. doing some of it from peak run performance, like this, this is something I can actually do. Maybe there's yeah. no market for it yet, but I can create one. Yeah, and I, I, I had a growing confidence that I could work with any runner. I had worked with a lot of beginning running people. I, I mean, I'd worked with people who just had a heart attack and were just getting started, all the way up to people you know trying to go to the Olympic Games. So I felt better and better about that, and wanted to help people. And I thought, well, I'll do this part-time, and then I'll get a job in a cardiac rehab unit or something wherever we land. But it only took about three or four months that I was like, well, if I get like, and I think a lot of coaches have this, if I can get like three more clients, I'd be better off just doing this. You know, I can just do this. 
And so that's what happened. And it just kind of took off from there. And I didn't intend it to be a business with, you know, lots of clients. It just was like what I did. How many athletes were you working with at that time when it really blew up? Uh, I guess within a, a year or so, we were nearing a hundred online coaching people really quickly. And so it was like, okay, I can't, I can't coach this many people. And that was and that, just you handling all of it. Well, for a while, but mm-hmm. it, you, you're, you do this too. So, you know, you quickly run out there of are like, limits. I cannot adequately serve this person. And so pretty quickly I started to hire people that could come in and help me with that. And so within two or three years, you know, I had a few people working for me and we were, you know, doing personal online coaching through the website. Hey, one more quick break to thank Final Surge for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've been using Final Surge for the past two and a half years to run the coaching side of my business as well as plan my own training, and I really can't say how much of a game changer it's been for me and my athletes. The coaching tools have made planning and delivering training easy and seamless. Communication is completely streamlined into one easy-to-navigate portal, and it's made my workflow far more efficient and effective. Final Surge syncs easily with a number of GPS watches and various other tracking platforms to import all the data that you'd ever need to analyze. The mobile app is incredible and makes on-the-go check-ins and communication easy and seamless. I couldn't do what I do without Final Surge, and I can't recommend it enough to other coaches regardless of the level of athlete that you're working with. Final Surge is cost-effective for coaches, and athlete accounts are 100% free. It's great for coaches of all types and levels, whether you coach individual athletes like I do, high school and college teams, or even a club. Athletes can find training plans from a number of world-class coaches, including myself, and coaches, you can get a 10% discount on your first purchase of a coaching account using the coupon code MORNINGSHAKEOUT. That's all caps, no the, all one word, MORNINGSHAKEOUT, when you check out at finalsurge.com. Go to finalsurge.com slash morningshakeout to purchase a training plan written by yours truly, to find more information about coaching packages, or to check out a 14-day coaching trial. My thanks to Final Surge for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Was running the business challenging for you, having other coaches that you need to manage, invoicing, all the different aspects that are involved with it? Well, I never liked it, I'll be honest. I I, don't either. I I don't like that component of it, so I'm not sure I always did a good job with that. But I think that um, my passion for what we were doing allowed me to select and keep people who were on board with that and would make all of that other stuff easy. And I was fairly... I knew what I wanted. I knew kind of how it would work for me and other people kind of slotted into that and it wasn't it wasn't too too bad. I never wanted it. I never saw it growing to be this massive sort of Carmichael training system, big pyramid with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of coaches. So it was kind of a little bit manageable at that time. How did you go about bringing on new coaches to work for you? At first, um, I hired just people like uh, one guy who still works for me was running for the University of Texas because my wife was a professor at Austin. And so that was easy because he was a runner and I would just sort of teach him the system, kind of like Guy Avery had taught me. I would teach him 
and kind of had that sort of internal coaching education and then bring him on slowly where he was doing more and more of the work with an athlete from, Mm -hmm. okay, first, I just want you to pretty up this training schedule that I mapped, sketched out for you, make it look pretty to then, okay, why don't you have some engagement? So there was that part initially. And then later, a lot of the coaches that came on board, I had coached myself, so they were part of the elite team I'd coached, or I had some association with them through that vehicle. And then had that internal coaching education that I would do to try to pass on, okay, this is the comparative, this is the decoder ring, mm-hmm. and then this is kind of the system, how I use it, and these are the rules that you would use, and these are the ways you would modify and all that kind of stuff. So bring them up to speed. I don't want to fast forward through too much, but when did the McMillan Elite Team come into existence, and how did it come into existence? Uh, well, part of it was because that FILA program got cut. So that got cut in 2002. We had just had a woman who was national champion. That was the first one that we had national champion, but we'd had people on the world championship team every year. And I continued to work with some of those athletes. So in 2003 and 2004 and 2005, I still had some of those pro athletes that I was coaching. Were you working remotely with them? Remotely. Um, and But I had a yearning of unfinished business. Because we were supposed to get to the 2004 Olympic trials. That was what the program was set up to do. And we didn't get to do it. So I still, I kind of had a desire to work at that level and I wanted to keep doing it. And so I just was never satisfied with just having my online business and doing it that way. And I guess I badgered my wife enough that, hey, I want to do a team again. I want to set it up. I want to do it the way I wanted to do it and, you know, be in charge and, and recruit the athletes I wanted to work with, et cetera. And so in 2007 is when McMillan Elite officially started. In 2006, I had already been bringing some athletes up to Flagstaff, which I, we had done a ton of research on altitude training locations. I'd settled Flagstaff was the place. So Mike Smith, who's now the coach at NAU, he was one of the first athletes that I brought to Flagstaff. Another woman who had won the Houston Marathon, she moved there. So I started going there part-time and staying for a month or two at a time. Abdi would come there quite a bit and train. So we kind of started having this loose, and there were already some athletes who Mm -hmm. lived in Flagstaff who were doing the bagel run, which is the famous run there. There Some of those guys from University of Colorado were kind of extending their collegiate career. So it kind of became this little place that I would go and then eventually convinced her. Where were you based at the time? Austin. Okay. Mm -hmm. So 2007-ish, you've got more and more people coming to flag. You've got the formings of what is now a formal training group. For a while, you guys had a relationship with Adidas. When did that come into the picture? That was at the start. I had moved there and I had the idea for a team. And uh, because I had run for the Adidas Move and Shoes team, I knew people now that had moved up in mm-hmm. Adidas. And I just happened to have a conversation with a guy who was working at Global in Germany. And I told him what I wanted to do. I kind of I had a four-year plan all laid out. This was the coaching philosophy. This was the training philosophy. This is what our goals are going to be each year leading into, you know, through the Olympiad. And I just, you know, shared it with him and he had some budget and it was tiny. 
But it was a start. It gave us equipment. It gave us a little bit of travel funds. And that's how McMillan Elite started. And then my wife let me spend our own money. And because you got to do that yeah. at that time, at least you had to pay. And so we, we subsidized some of it and Adidas put in some and the athletes took a loop of faith. Well, it's interesting because now we see bigger groups from all different shoe companies. You've got Nike, which had the Oregon project no longer, but Bowerman Track Club. You've got Brooks Beast. You've got Hanson's Brooks. Uh, I had a conversation with Frank Gagliano, who's had a bunch of groups over the years, and he was talking about how when he started the current iteration of what is now the Hoka New Jersey New York Track Club, it started as a 501c3, and he was bankrolling it out of his own pocket. Ben Rosario, who has Northern Arizona Elite now, which has Hoka as a title sponsor, he started that out of his own pocket. And I think a lot of people who aren't deeply embedded in the sport listening to this are like, oh, these shoe companies are very generous and they sponsor these groups. <laughs> it's like, well, not exactly. More often than not, it's someone had an idea and they wanted to see this thing become a reality and they took a risk like you did and put their own money into it to get it off the ground and sustain it for a while. Totally, because once McMillan Elite started having success, so we were two or three years in and we, we were doing well, we were you know, becoming the team that we wanted to be, a lot of people, I want to start a team, how do I do it? And I was like, what's your bank account look like? Do you have 20 grand this year that you can put into it? What about 40 next year? Are you willing to spend $150,000 of your own money? I mean, people don't, you're right, they don't. They only see it later. Mm -hmm. They see it once the budgets increase, once there's more financial stuff coming in, or once the athletes are good enough that they're making good money. Yeah. But we weren't getting tier one athletes. We were getting tier two, three, four athletes. They had no way to earn money. So we spent a lot of our savings to, you know, kind of jumpstart the team. I don't regret it because it was absolutely what I wanted to do. And absolutely, I always respected people trying to go for something big. It's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be Quentin Cassidy. I wanted to, you know, do that. And so I just was like, we got to do this. We got to help these guys. Anything we can do to help them, we have to do it. What was the end of the team? In 2013, the program had always been globally sponsored, and they were no longer going to take it out of their budget. It was going to have to come from the U.S., and the U.S. didn't have budget to do it. And at that time, my son, uh, who was about five or six, he started to miss me quite a bit. And then we had some athletes who were transitioning and moving into different phases of their lives. So the combination of those kinds of things, I said, you know what, I think I better take a break Number one, because of my son, I know I only have a few years before he's like, Dad, you stink, get away from me. Because you were traveling a lot. Yeah, 20, 25 weekends a year, you're right. gone. And it's a it's a 24-7, 365 job if you have a team because every weekend you're working, you, you're either driving the car with long runs or you're traveling somewhere. And every athlete's problem is your problem. So your phone can ring at any time and you got to deal with. So, I mean, that's kind of what you have to do. That's the deal. That's the deal. So you do it. Um, but, you know, if you if you have a, a child and I only have one and he kind of starts to miss you and you're like reading bedtime stories over Skype. That cuts deep. I was like, well, I don't know. I'm, I, I got maybe five or six years here. I think I might. And so it was just a really good time to make a... a to stop doing that for a while. 
did the group fulfill the expectations that you had for it going in in 2007? Yes. We learned a a whole lot, but we pretty much matched all of the goals I had laid out from the beginning. We had pretty much done that all the way through. We had had a lot of success. The trouble with running is there's no end to the success, right? It's almost always a failure because there's always more. There's always more. That's what I always tell people, and you've been it. If you're in the elite athlete tent at the end of a major marathon, it's horrible because most people did not achieve what they wanted to achieve. There's like five people that are happy. Everybody else is upset. So... um, You know, I think that on the whole, now that I'm removed from it a little bit, I'm more and more proud of the work that we did. I'm excited for the opportunities we provided for people. I love seeing the athletes. Mike Smith, look what he's done. He was part of that group, and now he's coaching in AU, and he's having such great success, and other athletes that are coaching in different collegiate situations. So, uh, yeah, I I think it it was good. It was like everything, you'd go back and do so many things differently. differently. But I think for what we started with, we were successful. Do you miss it? I miss some of it. I certainly miss the you know connection with the athletes and working very hard to do something that's extraordinarily difficult and has no room for failure. And you're just, you're really coaching them up because they're good. They're fast. And you're around them all the time. And it's very different from what you're doing with the rest of McMillan running and a lot of the remote coaching, which is great too. It's what I mostly do. But when you have that in-person connection, you're there with them every day. You're literally living through it with them. I mean, it it really does something for you. It's fantastic. I mean, you're sharing a really close bond with somebody that's trying to do something extraordinary. So if you, you know... When you're thinking back to, oh, that freezing morning that I got on the bike and rode this, you know, long run with this athlete who was preparing for Boston and they end up being the top American at Boston, you're like, man, that was awesome. So that part certainly was a lot of fun. And the travel I loved, you know, getting the travel the world was really great. Now that your son is older, are you having thoughts about potentially launching another elite group again? Well, I would... I would love to, I mean, you know, you, you get nostalgic and would love to do it. The, the thing is, there's a lot of great opportunities for athletes now. I feel like the established path is really there. When we started, you know, it was really coming off of the year 2000. And everybody talks about that story of we only had one woman and one man yeah, in the Olympic marathon. marathon right. And that's when Hanson's and Zap and all the Team USA's started. And so we were like the second wave of that. And now this new wave is just a really good setup, I think, for a lot of those athletes. And where we live here is not super conducive to it, even though the running is fantastic. The cost of living is so high that it's difficult for people to kind of live here and give it a go. I've often thought about that myself yeah. because I get asked all the time, why don't you start a, a group? And I'm like, you realize how expensive it is yeah. to live in the Bay Area, especially if you want to do it as a, a full-time athlete. They tried. I mean, Bay Area Track Club mm-hmm. tried. I mean, Nike had a group here years ago with the farm team down mm-hmm. in Palo Alto, but I'd argue it's even harder to do that now than it was 15, 20 years ago. And if you're not connected to the area, you'd choose a different place just because you could do uh, something less expensive or have an altitude and a sea level. You could have all kinds of different arrangements. So 
Uh, I don't know. It's it's difficult to say. I'm really having a lot of fun right now working with age group athletes. I'm finding that's really enjoyable because, again, I, I worked in the really heavy elite for a while, and now it's kind of fun to come back to a little bit step down from that and help people qualify for Boston or break a certain time barrier, those kinds of things. Well, let's bring it back to McMillan running. It's your full-time plus job. This is what you created back in 2002. Now you have multiple coaches working for you. You offer more than just one-on-one coaching. You're doing a, a bunch of different things. Could you have ever envisioned that McMillan running would have evolved to where it is today? No way. Absolutely not. I had no idea that it would it would do what it's done. Like I said, it was supposed to be a part-time job. And then I thought, well, I'll just do this. It's great. I make the, I make the same money as if I got a real job. So I'll just keep doing this. And I had no idea. I was very ill-prepared for the type of growth that it has had. Has it become more challenging in the last several years as more and more coaches have kind of come out of the woodwork? Because it's a lot easier to be a remote-based coach now than it was when you got started. I mean, I, I chuckle at the thought of, of sending faxes back and forth. And I remember even when I started just out of school in 2004, same way that you did with teammates asking me to write them training programs, mm-hmm. it was just emailing them back and forth because I, maybe Training Peaks was like in its infancy at that point, but I had no idea yeah. what it was. And like you certainly couldn't do cloud-based sharing through like Google mm-hmm. Sheets and, and things like that. But now it's like, oh, there's a number of different platforms yeah. that you can use to deliver training to people. And that's made it accessible to other coaches. Communication, I mean, there's 47,000 ways that we can communicate with each other. Now, I'd, I'd love to just understand like what that's done for McMillan Running. Well, there's certainly more competition for sure. I think the web has um, sort of lowered the bar of entry. You know, I went through one path, which was I was a good runner. I studied exercise science. I was mentored by all of these great coaches and coached at all these levels. That was my path to doing it. A lot of people, they have a shorter path, so it's easy to build a website and, and get started. There's a lot more access to information. I was going to use bookstores to read those books. Now, everybody can learn everything online. It's really, you can get up to speed as a coach much, much faster. So from one standpoint, there's definitely more competition. But I mean, to a certain extent, we've always, I've always been busy. So I haven't worried about that so much. I think the the reputation and the history, there's always been people that have been like, that's a person I want to work with. Well, so. there are very few coaches out there who have been doing it, certainly remotely, for, I mean, 18 years now. Right. And I think that's a competitive advantage <laughs> you have in this <laughs> flooded marketplace. Well, maybe so. Um, but, yeah, it's, I, don't, I don't know. The good is, you know, getting coaching is helpful. It's helpful for runners. So having access to so many – and there's so many ways that – people are coming into the sport, Mm -hmm. it's really nice that there are options for everybody. We've got, you know, in-store, in-person coaching, which is a great avenue for so many people coming to the sport. And then we've got more of the pro level or the competitive level. We've got online, we've got hybrids that are half online, half. So it's kind of, I mean, it's wonderful from that standpoint. I guess I could get you know, frustrated and be like, man, I had to do all this work and now you guys come in and put a pretty website up. But 
uh, ultimately, everybody's doing it for the same reason. They're trying to help people, and it's hard to complain about that. Well, but to your point about coaching in general, even outside of running, and I think this is largely a benefit, you're seeing it happen in, in other parts of the population as well. You have executive coaching now, yeah, life coaching, which you could laugh at or make arguments against, but like all these different types of coaching and, and mentorship that are available to people now because it is so accessible. And in the past, it hasn't been. And it's like, you know, by and large, it's like, that's going to benefit them and yeah. just help them either live a better life, be a better parent, be a better employee, be a better runner, whatever mm-hmm. it may be for them. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I don't, I don't have an issue with lots of competition uh, yet. Maybe I will in the future, but at the moment, no, I think it, I, we just need to keep, you know, spreading the word and all those people that aren't runners that can become runners. We got to be there for them. Do you think coaching, let's stick specifically to running. Do you think more needs to be done from a certification standpoint? I mean, certifications exist. There's USATF certification. You could be a VDOT certified coach. You can be RRCA certified coach. There's a dozen or more other like quote unquote certifications that one can have. Is is that something that needs to be streamlined a little bit more, taken more seriously? I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Well, my viewpoint is yes, but you have to understand where I'm coming from. I was always the student of the sport. Mm -hmm. So to me, getting a certification made complete sense. I'm a coach. I want to be better. I'm going to do that. I've done RRCA. I've done USA Track and Field. I've done Lydia. I've done all of, you know, like that's just my nature is to try to do that. I feel like if you're a coach, then you do, you want to explore, you want to get those certifications. I think it could be helpful because... Uh, you do see coaches that are doing things and you're like, I, you know what? I would have done that before as well, but we know better. Mm-hmm. And so you do wish, and I'd done it. I, you know, I have an internal coaching education program that people that come to work for me do. And in 2015, I launched it as anybody can come. Mm-hmm. And that was me kind of just going through my path and the system and doing all this comparative analysis of different training systems. And then, okay, here's the McMillan system, how we've integrated that. Um, so I do believe coaching education is super important. And um, one of the challenges is that everybody comes with their lens. So you have a high school coach, they need one thing. You've got right. an adult running coach who's working with people that are just couched to 5K, right? So that's a different lens. And you've got, oh, I want to work with Boston qualifiers or national class people, or I'm, I want to work with Olympic-type athletes. So it's it's hard to f- make one fit everything. Yeah, right? one running size definitely is, does not fit Yeah, all. it's very tough, very tough. So I, I like all of them, but I do feel like if we had a better structure – overall for everybody kind of getting the basics down and learning how to maybe modify would be great. And then continuing education because a lot is exciting is going on, right? particularly in this second running boom, sort of in the 90s, 2000s into now and with neuroscience and some of those things, really exciting times. We need to be open to continuing to learn. I mean, that's what's exciting for me and similar to you, kind of how I got started with this in the first place myself. My background is not in exercise science, it's in philosophy, but because of the way that I came up through the sport, I've always been interested in how people train for these things because I didn't have a great high school coach. Unfortunately, I did in college and I learned a lot from her and I've always had this insatiable appetite for you know, learning. And now there is, I mean, back to accessibility, it is so accessible, we can get it 
online, but there's so much cool stuff that's happening outside of, you know, sort of the traditional exercise physiology path. Like you said, neuroscience, like, you know, sports psychology, how all of these things like blend together. And I, I think it's, I mean, it's an exciting time to be a coach, um, especially if you if you have that that appetite for knowledge to make yourself better, realizing that none of us really have this figured out, even if you know, we, we know enough to, to guide people where they want to go. Well, and every athlete's different, right? Yeah. So you got to have a wide breadth because one thing that works for one may not work for another. And something you can learn from, you know, a sprint coach could apply to somebody that you're going to work with or what we're learning from the medical side, the prehab kind of side of stuff. You're like, wow, okay, now we can bring that in for distance runners and that can really help them. We should be evolving and getting better and better so we can help anybody that comes through the door. We should be able to say, okay, I know you and here's how I can help. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. For me, it's been talking to coaches outside of running. I've re- like, I don't box. Um, I've never trained to be a boxer, but I love, I've gotten to meet and learn from some boxing trainers. And it's interesting that there, there are a lot of parallels there between how you approach preparing someone for a fight versus preparing someone or, you know, with preparing someone for a race. And then even, you know, listening to some of the top NBA coaches on podcasts, like a Steve Kerr or like a Brad Stevens, and just like they're managing like a, a group environment. It's like if you have a team of any sort, it's like you know there are a lot of principles that they have proven effective in their world that can be applied to running. And I think that I think that's just like super cool, and just having that kind of accessibility now um, is really exciting. It is, and the path is there. We have. You know, there was only a few mentors and then there were more mentors and now there's just thousands. There's so many people you can learn from and everybody's trying to help somebody be a little bit better. And so you can take pieces of all of that and work with it. We've been going for a while here and I want to be respectful of your time, but to bring it back to you and where you are right now in terms of your own running, what's exciting you right now? Well, I got quite fit in 2018. You know, we have this wonderful cross-country series here in the Bay Area. And for me, that's, again, trying to relive high school cross-country. That's I love. And so I got good shape then. And then we had some, my mother-in-law passed away and we moved. We had some of those issues. So I'm kind of excited for 2020. I think the turn of the calendar was good for me to be like, okay, put 2019 behind me. That was kind of a down year. Now let's get ready for 2020. So I still search for me versus me. I still search for that battle. I look for how can I set myself up to do that more and more. So I'm still that guy out there. I'm slower, but I'm still challenging myself. I still love that. Well, that brings this conversation full circle. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate you coming up here to chat with me today. Thanks for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. You bet. another episode of the books thank you so much for listening in if you enjoyed this episode please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on instagram twitter or facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show you can also leave a rating and a review on apple podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me a big thank you to our sponsors for this episode exoskin and final surge 
Exoskin is the only seamless athletic apparel brand in the United States and solves the problems most endurance athletes deal with, like chafing, blisters, hot spots, and odor. I've run in both their compression shorts and socks and have been super impressed with how they fit, feel, and perform on the run. Exoskin stands behind every product they make with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Check them out today at exoskin.us and use the code MARIO, that's my name, when you check out and save 20% on any order. Final Surge is the platform I use to run the coaching side of my business as well as plan my own training, and I really can't say how much of a game changer it's been for me and my athletes. The coaching tools have made planning and delivering training easy and seamless. Communication is completely streamlined into one easy-to-navigate portal, and it's made my workflow far more efficient and effective. Go to finalsurge.com slash morningshakeout to purchase a training plan written by yours truly to find more information about coaching packages or to check out a 14-day coaching trial. Coaches, you can get a 10% discount on your first purchase of a coaching account using the coupon code MORNINGSHAKEOUT. That's all caps, no the, all one word when you check out at finalsurge.com. A big shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show, and he makes every episode sound as good as it does. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas, who handles my sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 